2: Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley.
3: Welcome to episode 197 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. After retiring from medical practice, I became an activist for family caregiving. Our topic today is high-risk responses to high-risk behaviours in mental illness. High-risk behaviour is behaviour that's risky to the person behaving in a risky way or that's risky to other persons. High-risk behaviour includes violence, violence to oneself, the most serious form of which is suicide, violence against others, the most serious form of which is killing, killing someone, High-risk behaviour includes substance abuse and unprotected sex. High-risk behaviour takes a major toll on the lives of persons, families and communities. And some high-risk behaviour, not all, is associated with mental illnesses such as Alzheimer's disease, bipolar disorder, clinical depression, schizoaffective disorder and schizophrenia. And some high risk behavior creates an emergency requiring immediate attention, such as suicidal thoughts or attempts, excessively violent or homicidal thoughts or actions. Now, high risk responses, which is what we're talking about today, are actions or inactions that increase the risk. And there are, th- they are things, these high risk responses that family caregivers should be aware of, which is why our topic High-risk responses to high-risk behaviours in mental illness is so important. And to discuss it, our guest is Dr. Chris Somerville. Now, Chris is a non-government director of the Mental Health Commission of Canada, and as a family member and a recipient of psychiatric services, he's been the executive director of the Manitoba Schizophrenia Society since 1995, and currently is also the CEO of the Schizophrenia Society of Canada. As a provincial and national leader and advocate, he serves on numerous boards and committees, including the Mood Disorders Society of Canada, the National Network on Mental Health, the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health, and several ethics committees. With an earned doctorate, he's certified as a psychosocial rehabilitation practitioner and as a suicide intervention trainer. And he sees mental illness as an issue not only of health, but also of social justice. So welcome to the show, Chris.
1: Thank you, Dr. Atherley.
3: Now, first question for you. Please tell us more of your personal story and about your work as CEO of the Schizophrenia Society of Canada.
1: Chris? Well, a lot of people ask me, you know, why I have such a passion of working in this field for nearly 20 years and the reasons... uh, are number one my my father uh, struggled with bipolar disorder and it created a lot of chaos in our home when I was growing up in Birmingham Alabama I've been in Canada since 1985 working in the mental health movement but I also have a brother with uh, schizophrenia another brother with bipolar disorder and he he, um, took his own life uh, this past November uh, as did my father in 1987 so we know that one in five people will have a mental illness in their lifetime, and mental illnesses, you know, can be soft forms, uh, you know, mild forms, severe forms, just like cases of the flu. And people ask me, Dr. Athley, you know, well, what is a mental illness? Well, it's a it's a general term that refers to a group of illnesses or disorders of the brain that significantly affect your thinking, your feeling, your sensation, your perception, your behavior. So much so, it's so severe that it interferes with your working, relating, playing, and loving with other people. So it it creates a lot of disorder in your life, potentially.
3: Now, I'd like to ask you to say something about high-risk behaviors, particularly in relation to schizophrenia, but also mm-hmm. in relation to mental illnesses mm-hmm. generally. Chris,
1: well, once a person develops a mental illness, which is mainly in late childhood or, or uh, early adolescence, seventy percent of the cases of uh, mental illnesses develop in early, uh, late childhood or early adolescence. Um, I mean, you still have your personality intact. So if if you were a kind person you probably will still try to be a kind person if you're an obnoxious person uh, you'll probably still be an obnoxious person after you develop a a mental illness but um, the reality is is that uh, uh, mental illnesses are of such a nature that it not only affects you know your own life it affects those around you those you love and most people are uncertain or afraid of or just don't know how to relate to another person with a mental illness. Most people with mental illnesses are not violent. Uh, That's the great myth that we constantly combat in our movement. Ninety-three, or excuse me, 97% of people with mental illnesses in general will never come in conflict with the law. But on the other hand, you know the three percent um, that do i mean we, we take that seriously and in Canada we we call them uh, if, if if they get that designation because they lack insight into what they did, uh, they're not criminally responsible because of a mental disorder.
3: Chris, that just a quick additional question on that. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of controversy in Canada about that not not criminally responsible judgment. Do you want to say a little bit more about it and the implications as you see?
1: Well, again, just the bare-bone facts are that um, 97% of people with mental illnesses do not come in conflict with the law, and then of those who do, only point zero zero one percent get a designation of not criminally responsible which means that they did not have insight they did not appreciate the rightness and wrongness of the act that they did because they were under the influence of of severe mental illnesses so that's a very small number in canada currently we have approximately three thousand people who are ncr that is not criminally responsible and they spend an average of ten years in a forensic psychiatric unit, which they get the best mental health treatment anyone can ever get and when they are released ninety seven percent don't reoffend three three percent do reoffend but when you compare that to the federal correction system in Canada, um, people who are released from correctional system at a federal level, 45% of them re-offend. So I mean, that, that's, a, that's a big difference between the two numbers.
3: Yeah, it's a very telling point, that, isn't it? Now, Chris, I, I want to ask you to define high-risk responses to high-risk mm-hmm. behaviors, because mm-hmm. that's what we're really talking about. Yeah,
1: yeah. Tell me what, well, tell me what they yeah. are. Yeah, so what do you do when you're around someone uh who is um you might not know that they have a mental illness and uh what um people who respond uh, to emotionally distressed persons, that's what they call it, like police and others, first responders, responding to emotionally distressed persons. I mean, obviously, they are not psychiatrists, and they're not sure if they're dealing with a pre-existing mental illness or emerging mental illness or extreme emotional stress. And 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 so it's very important to help first responders, um, those who are working. Closely to protect our society because we we believe in public safety. Um, they need a great deal of help in terms of knowing how to respond to emotionally distressed or emotionally disturbed persons. Um, generally, what they're finding is that when they come upon the scene, you could be a nurse, you could you could be a family member, you could be a police person. Uh, the person does not seem to be fully rational. Uh, there may be unpredictable, unpredictable behavior. Um, they may not be making sense in terms of their their, their language. Uh, they may be making threats, either of suicide or, or hurting others. But generally, that's because of paranoid delusions and hallucinations. So there are those folks who have a mental illness that will occasionally uh, have paranoid delusions or hallucinations in which they think that someone is trying to hurt them, get at them, uh, harm them, And, and so they are as much fearful of the intervener or the responder as the responder might be fearful of them.
3: Is that, Chris, because the person who's having the delusions and hallucinations sees the person who's kind of coming close to them, getting involved with them Mm -hmm. as the threat that they have to fight against? Is that one factor?
1: Well, uh, yes, uh, absolutely. So, when I do training with uh, police forces here in Manitoba, which is where I'm located, uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, um, in our training with Law enforcement. We we try to help them to understand what a mental illness is, how to dif- differentiate it from just someone who is um, criminal in nature. I mean, people with mental illnesses generally are not criminal in nature. They are just acting out on their hallucination, which means they're hearing voices that are telling them things that that aren't real in reality. Uh, or they're having delusions of persecution and so forth. And so the general technical and typical training that law enforcement folks go through for training for handling emotionally distressed persons, it, it's really not adequate. I mean, I've done a lot of study on this, working with a number of um, experts in this area, especially with the Mental Health Commission of Canada, so uh, law enforcement officers generally are not really trained on how to respond to what they would call emotionally distressed or disturbed persons who, in fact, are experiencing a mental illness.
3: And that's a real challenge, isn't it? Because it what it means is that we're asking the police in that way to do things that they're really not trained to do. It's not that they don't want to do them, or, or it's not that they uh, decline help. It's just simply that this is a very specialised area.
1: Well, um, yeah. I mean, police officers are often the first-line responders, in dealing with people with mental illnesses, when there's um, some sense of threat. I mean, I mean... I mean, most of the high-risk behavior is nonviolent criminal offenses. But on right. the other hand, I have to say that there are violent criminal offenses. But police officers are generally responding to nonviolent uh, criminal offenses, and they're the first on the scene. Uh, they are the gatekeepers of the mental health Services and the justice system. Unfortunately, it shouldn't be that way. Uh, That's why they sometimes get the title of psychiatrist in blue. Psychiatrist in blue. And so they 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 play they play an important role in diffusing situations, you know, while trying to fulfill legal obligations. Yeah.
3: Now, on that point, we're going to take the break to pay the rent. This is Dr. Gordon Adler, and my guest is Dr. Chris Somerville. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Power River. Please stay with us. We're coming <laughs>
2: us on twitter for more great ideas at voice america empowerment
0: what if you were willing to be controversial choosing kindness instead of judgment willing to stand out from the crowd being a leader in creating a new reality even if others don't follow you can make a difference start by tuning in to the value of controversy each week our hosts will bring you the tools to help create the world that you want to live in and explore what's possible when you choose from the controversy of consciousness listen for the value of controversy every tuesday at 12 noon pacific time on the voice america empowerment channel who are we
4: can we really make the world a better place how can the mantle of personal power be most effectively passed from generation to generation? There is no correct answer, but by tuning in to Birthright of Power with Rev. Don and Jane Lewis, the goal is that you will find some help in this journey. What does it mean to be a warrior with multiple meanings of that word? How do we stay strong in the face of changing times? Listen to Birthright of Power, live every Monday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment.
2: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
3: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Chris Somerville. Our topic is high-risk responses to high-risk behaviors in mental illness. So now let's, Chris, talk about the challenges that arise with high-risk responses to high-risk behaviors. And first question for you is, please tell us about the challenges that high-risk responses create for the people themselves, the people with the mental illnesses, who become involved with law enforcement systems. What are their challenges?
1: So you're, you're asking for those people who, who actually are living with a mental illness, what what their state of affairs or their state of mind or how they respond to responders?
3: Yes, and um, yeah. from then on, okay. get involved okay. in the
1: law. Of okay, so if, you know, a police officer approaches a person who... Has bipolar disorder with some mania or some psychosis, and similarly um, schizophrenia, or if the person is suicidal, um, first of all, the the responder, the police officer, is seen as a threat, is seen as authority, and may well be viewed as part of the delusion that the person is experiencing. For example, we we tell police officers that, um, you know, take your helmet off, uh, explain every detail of what you're going to do, your movements to the individual, because, you know, there's, uh, they're in one state of reality in which they know, well, okay, the police have, have come to get me. And at the same time, they may think that, well, but this person is part of the conspiracy of God or some other entity uh, that is trying to destroy my life. So um, um, y- y- you, you don't use the authoritarian defensive mechanism that generally the SWAT team type of approach uh, that, that is used in a lot of cases. And so if you have a cell phone, what we call back in the old days walkie-talkies, whatever, you cut those things off and you go very slow in your speech. You have to repeat yourself a couple of times and you let the person know whatever action that you're going to be taking with them or against them and assuring them of their safety. So it takes time. It takes time and it takes skill.
3: It also is aimed, as, as I'm understanding you, to bring some kind of reassurance to the person who's un, un, affected by the hallucinations or whatever it is that's affecting them. That sense of reassurance, that's important, isn't it?
1: It is because... Uh, The signs and symptoms of a person who is expressing disturbed uh, uh, behavior, uh, there's lack of trust, there's impulsive behavior, uh, there's a low tolerance for stress. uh, They tend to respond in in an exaggerated manner, which police enforcement might see as aggressive. Uh, Behavior is unusual, upsetting to others speech pattern is unusual, uh presentation may be bizarre, and the person just frankly, realistically, has difficulty concentrating. So in our training with police officers and even medical professionals, believe it or not, even though they've been through many years of schooling, uh, we have to help them to understand that it's, it's not the person, it's the symptoms of the illness that they are experiencing that gets in the way of effective or successful communication.
3: Got it. Now, you mentioned doctors and medical professionals and so on. So let's talk about the challenges that these high-risk responses create for people mm-hmm. with mental illnesses mm-hmm. who, when they become involved with the healthcare system. They go to a hospital or something of that nature. What are those challenges?
1: Well, th- to be realistic and honest again, there will be a small percentage of people who are not cooperative. And so once they come into the emergency room or once they're admitted to the hospital, uh, they may be resistant and may want to fight and run away and the general response uh, historically has been to, you know, heavily sedate the person. We call it a B fifty two cocktail uh, that they give the person. But um, a lot of a lot of medical hospital, hospitals or, or medical situ- or environments are now doing away with seclusion and restraints and secret to it is taking time not to be threatened not to be fearful uh, not to go uh, according to your your timeline of management system you know you know respond now act right now or else we're going to give you this shot you you, you spend time talking with the person and listening to what their fears and their apprehensions are. You don't have to agree with the content of the hallucination or the delusion, but you can agree with the fear or the emotions, right? That's what I'm talking about. You can agree that the the that, that the emotions that the person is feeling, they are real, and they are real, even though the, the content upon which they are based are not real. And when you do that, the literature tells us uh, that it has a calming effect on people. So, yes, uh, healthcare providers are victims of assault by a few people with mental illnesses. And we're, we're not blaming the healthcare providers, but what we're trying to do is to help healthcare providers to know how to appropriately respond in a patiently uh, understanding way that the person is not just being um, antisocial or that the person is being just obnoxious or noncompliant. If you identify with their fears and their emotions, um, most of the time people will be cooperative with you.
3: Chris, just a very quick comment back to you on that. The fear is real. The the things that they're fearing may not be real, but the fear is real. That's your message, isn't it?
1: Well, the fear is real on both sides, Un- uh, unfortunately. It's unfortunate that a person who has lost touch with reality believes that others are against them or... That there's a conspiracy against them, or, or or this nobody believes them. You know, I don't have a mental illness. You know, and so nobody believes that. Nobody believes I don't have a mental illness. And even a lot of people I visit in the hospital, they say, "Look, Chris, you know, they think I've got schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. I don't." And I don't try to argue them out of it. I just say, "Well, tell me what you believe is wrong with you." And generally, what they talk about are stressful life events. And we need to listen to those stressful life events because stress is what triggers the mental illness. We don't know what exactly causes the particular mental illnesses. Uh, You know, we believe that genetics is very involved in it, but with the... uh, knowledge that's coming about through neuroplasticity and epigenetics. We know it's not just simply um, genetics. And then there's the fear of the health care provider or the, or the fear of the family member or the, or the police officer in, in terms of the fact that, um, number one, they're struggling with stigma. They're struggling with social prejudice. Um, not all family members, but but just unfortunate myths and misinformation uh, that, you know, if you're schizophrenic, whatever, and I don't use that word casually, uh, that you're going to be violent and you're going to hurt someone and you, you, you just muscle up your power to try to overcome their efforts. Right.
3: Now, let's just have a little bit more from you, please, about the challenges for family caregivers mm-hmm. in these kinds of situations. Mm-hmm. What, what are your comments about
1: Well, what may be a surprise to your audience is that most um, people with schizophrenia are are not violent, or or, or mental illnesses are not violent, but yet if there's going to be violence, it's generally towards the family member. It's not the general public. In other words... um, If there's assault or if there's a homicide, it's generally towards the family member, not the general public. I mean, your likelihood as a a member of the public, your likelihood of, of being killed by someone with psychosis is far less than that of being killed by lightning. And that's a quote from Dr. Patrick Bailey in Calgary, Alberta, who is a lawyer and a psychologist. But um, it does happen, and it's it's, um, family members worry about it when we do family education sessions. um, Family members will bring this up about, well, you know, what 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 about? My my son or my daughter, you know, they're up at night, we're sleeping, but they can't sleep at night, and they're talking about, you know, uh, doing some harm or violence to, to, to someone, and they, it's only natural that the family member is going to wonder whether it'll be directed towards them, but even as I say this, I want to remind your listeners that, you know, 97% of people with severe mental illnesses are not violent, but nonetheless, families are up close, they're in proximity, Um, the natural relationships that are there uh, prior to the schizophrenia are going to be there after onset of schizophrenia or mental illness, so if it's an unhealthy family situation, it'll be an unhealthy family situation after the onset of mental illnesses.
3: Right. Now, at that point, we're going to leave it um, because I want to come back to several of these points you made within the next segment. So we'll take the break now. This is Dr. Gordon Adlery, and my guest is Dr. Chris Somerville. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channel and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. We're coming back.
2: us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Now you can discover your true identity through connecting healthy relationships. Make your contribution to the world that you live in. Tune into Love Yourself with host Dorothy Doctor, the self-love coach. Dorothy is a gifted listener as well as an empowerment expert. She can help you take those first steps toward moving forward in your life and the lives of others. Find your true authentic self. Love Yourself with Dorothy Doctor is broadcast live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.
4: When you make decisions, do you ever find yourself in doubt? Are you trying to figure out what's right with you? Are you ready to truly change your life? Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com
2: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg@FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. at That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
3: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Chris Somerville. Our topic is high risk responses to high risk behaviors in mental illness. Now, Chris, you've said a lot about the challenges. I want you to say more about overcoming the challenges. Okay? And I'm going to divide them up into challenges associated with the law enforcement system, challenges with the healthcare system, and also for family family uh, caregivers. So let's start off with what are your strategies that you recommend to overcome the challenges that these high-risk responses create when people become involved with the law enforcement system? And we're talking about people with mental illnesses of one form or another.
1: And yes, and again, we're talking about a very small number of people. So what to look for when confronting an individual who perhaps may have a mental illness, but on the scene they seem to be emotionally disturbed, the the first question that you ask yourself is, how are they thinking? So you want to listen for topics, themes, ideas, express concerns uh, in in terms of hallucinations or delusions, magical thinking, uh, pressured speech, not making sense with their language, uh, sense of grandiosity or paranoia. And and basically, how you learn how they are thinking, you ask the question, "How are you?" And when you ask the person, "How are you?", they're going to tell you. They, they most of the time they will tell you about what I said—the top, topics, themes, and ideas—and express concerns. And then, secondly, then you go into, "Well, how are they feeling?" So you're looking at their emotions. Emotional state, their, their their verbal and nonverbal cues, and they they may be scared and distrustful and emotionally inconsistent with their content. So the question there is, well, so you feel upset, and when you make that statement, which is in a question form, really, I mean, people will talk about th- their cognitive behavior and congruency or incongruency. Uh, And that tells you, you know, that you know you're dealing with someone who's presenting with some significant mental health issues. So how are they thinking? That's their brain. How are they feeling? That's their heart. And then how are they acting? And that's their feet. And so most people, when they're in a high risk situation, they have unusual movements, repetitive actions, foot tapping. Uh, agitation, pacing, Uh, they're responding to hallucinations, talking to another voice that's out there, they may be mannequin behavior, And, and, and so the question you would ask is, you seem to have difficulty, and they'll say, well, yeah, you know, they may talk about their odd mannerisms, their impulsive behavior, uh, what have you? So all you're doing is in a very non-scientific way, non-medical way, you're trying to recognize hallucinations, recognize delusions, and then knowing how to respond to the person, primarily in in what's called old-fashioned active listening. Just active listening. Focus on what the speaker says. Uh, repeat what they they think or or, or what she says. Uh, you know, use good questions. Be honest. Uh, listen, judge not. Listen non-judgmentally, and always paraphrase and empathize. As I said, you can always empathize with the fear and anxiety or distress. So these are some of the strategies uh, that we help first responders. Right. With
3: Chris, I want to just go straight over now into a situation in a busy emergency room mm-hmm. where. I'm- Somebody is brought in, perhaps mm-hmm. or comes in in i 'm going to call it the stressed and distressed that, yeah. that you've been describing now, given that ever since i've been in medicine, emergency rooms have always been overcrowded and far mm-hmm. too busy. Mm-hmm. How about the uh, challenges for the person with the mental illness in that kind of situation, what do you say about that
1: well it's- Sad to say, and I will say it nonetheless, is that emergency rooms are not well equipped to deal with people who come into those waiting areas that are emotionally distressed or having mental illnesses. Uh, Number one uh, is there is the stigma, and the Canadian Psychiatric Association has done significant research now with its own profession to realize that social prejudice or stigma, fear, um, 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 difficulty in terms of knowing how to respond to the person does exist in the profession. So if the person is a regular person to the emergency room, well, here we have another nut case, and to put them at the end of the line, even though they may really be having some physical problems in terms of heart palpitations, uh, metabolic issues in terms of diabetes, weight gain, and so forth. So in Winnipeg, we've created a uh, mental health crisis response center. Now, some people think it's stigmatic, but it's a way to, 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 to offset or to deal with the fact that Most emergency room situations and and people, uh, because of the stigma, uh, don't respond to the person with mental illness in the most appropriate fashion. So it's going to be very interesting to see after a year or two, and someone does some studies on the Mental Health Response Crisis Center in Winnipeg, to see how effective it is and whether it's working or not.
3: Right now let's talk about the same thing overcoming the challenges that these high-risk responses create Mm -hmm. but for family caregivers now what I'm after there is fear in the hearts of family caregivers Mm -hmm. Um, that is they have uh, a family member who they they've heard the diagnosis Mm -hmm. and they've maybe had one or two frightening experiences and not always can they get the kind of support they're looking for from the healthcare system. And, I, and Chris, I've actually heard one or two people say the people they find most helpful are the police. Now, I want you just please to say some words about um, the way in which you think family caregivers in these kind of situations should take account of the kind of understanding that you've shared with us and respond in a way that's going to be most helpful to their family member and to them.
1: Well, family members love their family members whether they have a mental illness or not. And most family members are very understanding. Um, Their dilemma is when a crisis arises, what do I do? How do I navigate the mental health system? Who do I call? Who's going to help me? And the police or rather law enforcement system is generally utilized first because it's the gateway to mental health services. It shouldn't be that way, but I mean people should through mental health acts, uh, going through the emergency room, um, be able to access the, the mental health services help that they need, but uh, today, the largest uh, mental health institution in Canada, as well as the United States, is the penal system, so the correctional system, and that's because the police are generally the first people called or the gatekeepers, as we say, because you can uh, you can um, use the law. Uh, to arrest a person, uh, to book a person, and then they have to go through the legal process, and then part of the verdict, depending on whether they do, in fact, have a mental illness or not, is that uh, the judge can mandate uh, mental health services, either through a mental health court or the Mental Health Act. Um, It's very disconcerting to family members um, family members, every week I get a call from a family member who says, I utilize the Mental Health Act. They were picked up by the police. They went to the emergency department. They were seen by the nurse. They were seen by the doctor. Then they were seen by a psychiatrist because it's a triage system. And then they were released. And it's very frustrating to family members because, they They know the evidence they live with the evidence now, to be fair to doctors, I mean they have to see evidence of psychosis, they have to see evidence of mental illness, they have to see evidence of um... disorganized thinking and and what have you and some people um it's a mystery um they a lot of people can simply hide that momentarily um just keep it to themselves. And so the person is uh, back on the street or back at home, and there's there's not been any help given to the individual. So that's very frustrating for family members.
3: How do you deal with that?
1: Well, I tell family members that when you go to the magistrate or the judge here in Canada, that you you write down your observations, your journal, and you, you give that to the magistrate, but then you want to really try to get it to the doctor and if you can arrange to know when the police are going to pick the person up under the mental health act and take them to the hospital and if you can arrange to be there and somehow or another get your notes and your journals to the doctor uh, it can be helpful but again it's up to the doctor as to whether they will read those notes and taking consideration the, the corroborative uh, information that you're, you're you're giving, I mean, there's a lot of mess around privacy information. So uh, a lot of doctors think that they cannot talk to family members. Uh, the the privacy legislation in Canada it differs from province to province, but nothing prevents a doctor from explaining to a family member their philosophy of what they understand about mental illnesses and how they treat mental illnesses and uh, their viewpoints about it, whether recovery is possible and so forth without ever talking about the specific individual. But a lot of doctors don't do it. Number one, because they don't get paid for it. Um, Family consultations, they don't get paid for that in in Canada. Um, A lot of doctors have not had much training in family systems therapy. Uh, a lot of doctors don't don't want to do it simply because they don't have time you know the wait times are atrocious here in Canada
3: Chris I'm going to stop you there because of the next segment we're going to be talking about much more about the way in which family caregivers uh, can be supported by doctors and others so let's take the break now and then we'll come back to exactly what you've just been talking about so let's take the break this is dr gordon and my guest is dr chris somerville you're listening to family caregivers unite on the voice america variety and empowerment channels and cjmp 90.1 fm community radio for power river we're coming back
2: We're on Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. The challenges facing our teens today mean that more than ever, we need to be there to support them and encourage them. The Dr. Stem Show is here to provide discussions about topics that will help promote healthy relationships, self-image, and success for teens, parents, and the community our young people can achieve more in life than they ever dreamed possible. The Dr. Stem Show, hosted by Dr. Stem Malatini, will foster these discussions and encourage your participation. Listen every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific, and 9 p.m. GMT on Voice America Empowerment. We let so many outside factors mold and shape our lives technology instant delivery we live in an on-demand world what's happened to the compassion the kindness a better pace listen to might radio with host gabriella von ray we'll bring that kindness and compassion back to our world our guests come from around the world and we'll discuss what's being done and what we can do to bring our lives back to order Might Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.
4: Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com
2: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to Doc G at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
3: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Chris Somerville. Our topic is High Risk Responses to High Risk Behaviors in Mental Illness. Our title today, High Risk Responses to High Risk Behaviors in Mental Illness, reflects a real and harsh challenge for family caregivers. Um, You've been talking about this, Chris, and I want you to go on talking about it, uh, particularly with respect to what can be done. As you know, Chris, there's something in healthcare called the circle of care, and it's used as a way to sort of facilitate the flow of patients' medical records among healthcare professionals. Now, generally, family caregivers caring for family members with mental illnesses are excluded from the circle of care. So my first question is, what do you think about excluding family caregivers from the circle of care? What's your view?
1: Well, it's very problematic, and I know that in B.C., British Columbia, that they have amended their privacy legislation around healthcare matters to include family members. That is, if the person is living at home, uh, there's a strong connection to a family member, uh, that a family member can mm-hmm. be contacted uh, as a person of care concern, you know, let's say in terms of discharge planning if there's suicidal ideation. So but again it has to be with the permission of the patient. Um in North America we, we live in such a individualistic individual rights oriented um society. It's it's um which is rather uncommon around the rest of the world. And so we've we've gone probably to the extreme. I mean, Aboriginal culture or First Nations culture, uh certain cultural groups. I mean, when you deal with medical issues, you're dealing with the whole family. And um we need we need to come back to some balance in which the family members who are loving and caring and kind uh and who are supportive and are, you know, financially supporting or, or giving any kind of support to their loved one should have the necessary information to know what uh is happening and has happened and um, what the prospects of the person's recovery is, I mean mental illnesses are treatable I mean people do recover that is they learn how to live beyond the limitations of the mental illness, but that doesn't happen solo it doesn't happen individually uh, It happens with a community of support and you need that you need that family support. And the literature uh, more than suggests that when families are not only educated and knowledgeable about ways of understanding and communicating with people with mental illness, uh, but when they are engaged in a meaningful way uh, in the service uh, care planning, people with mental illnesses do far better. They do far better. So we have a ways to go in terms of working on legislation across Canada that's consistent to say that there are indeed times when family members uh, need to be informed just as much as any other health care provider. Now, the the, um, exception would be when it's a very toxic, shame-based, dysfunctional family. And I grew up in that kind of family. So... I would never have wanted my father to be part of my treatment team, you know, like I struggled with depression and severe depression to the point of suicidal ideation. But because we grew up in a very toxic, shame based, dysfunctional home, there was not the trust there uh, for my father to be included. But yes, with my mother so it's it's an indiv- it's it's person by person individual by individual circumstance
3: so what that really what that suggests to me chris is that there are protections that are going to be needed along the lines you've just suggested mm-hmm. and what that points to is some kind of organization whereby the circle of care um, could mm-hmm. be organized and maybe some kind of requirement to for people to demonstrate that mm-hmm. yeah they do they are the right kind of people to be receiving information about their um, family members well now, we generally this... do
1: it in, we generally do it in all other chronic illness management in some yeah. way or another we we found a way generally to to do it with people with multiple sclerosis or long term cancer um uh alzheimers what have you and we've we've got to find a way to be able to include family members in a meaningful engaging way without without um, um invalidating the rights of the individual. I mean, you know, when we talk about the brain, the mind, um people quote who and I'm I'm going to use a word that I don't generally use, but you know, if we think they're crazy, we we think Part of the myth is is that they have no insight and they have no capacity uh, to know what's happening around them. Most people that I know with a mental illness are very cognizant about life and reality, and they want dignity and respect, and most do want their family members involved. Um, but uh, for some reason, we, we've evolved to a state in which... Um, um, patient information is is limited to only those in need of that information in terms of emergency or, or high-risk behavior. Well, who else than the family?
3: Right. Now, this is a loaded question. I think it's necessary to have some kind of organization to have oversight of who's Admitted, accepted for the circle of care and who isn't. Uh, A body that's able to be fair minded uh, effective and efficient and not be too bureaucratic. So my loaded question is, is that something that the Schizophrenia Society of Canada could consider taking on?
1: Well we could consider taking it on. We could certainly uh, advocate policy around it, which we do but it's probably going going to be within the provincial uh, health care system provincial government in terms of how they enlarge their personal health information acts legislation uh, to take into consideration the things that you and I have talked about today um, i don 't i don 't see it being a profit organization such as the Schizophrenia Society that would be Uh, organizing uh, organizing it or um, legislating it or um, or administrating it, it it all falls under provincial legislation and that that certainly has to be looked at closely i know that the mental health commission of canada which uh... was chaired by the former senator michael kirby i mean he feels very strongly as you and i do that uh... the laws have swung too far to to the left uh, so that families are basically excluded.
3: Yep. Now, at that point, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but I just want to say to you that uh, that discussion about the circle of care and the way you've been describing it, uh, I think, needs to be pursued vigorously Mm -hmm. and i'm going if i may to lobby you on that point uh but not in this particular episode now i want to say thank you chris for sharing with us all the things you've said and the the way in which you've presented the challenges and the practical way in which you are able to suggest uh And advise responses to those challenges that are humane, are effective, and deal with this issue of fear on everybody's part. I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear ideas about topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode is mental health care in private residence organizations. Please join us same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then.
2: Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful.